Hey everyone, welcome to episode 5 of the Tech Huddle. We've got something a bit different today, we've got a guest on. We've got Wahid Tashkandi. Wahid's currently the head of commercial over at Goodfit.io and was previously an investment manager at Scalata Ventures. Wahid's coming on to answer some of our questions about startups and sales. We have a slightly different format this week. We're skipping the news and diving straight into the interview. So let's get started. Hey Wahid, thanks for joining us. Do you mind if I ask, you've had an interesting journey. I mean, you started at Paddle and then you moved over to Scalata Ventures where we met and now you're at Goodfit. So what made you want to get into that startup-y circle life? I wanted to go into something that there was money and technology. Didn't know what that was. I didn't know the name for it. I kind of, there's a Scalata blog about it, but basically it's like, I saw Bruce Wayne and I'm like, he's Batman because he's got loads of money. And then he's got this Michael Fox guy like, I think that's the setup. Um, like that was me in school. I was like, I don't know what career this is. And then really fortunately for me, I went to University of Melbourne and there was a student club that organized an event with different career pathways. And one of them was York Butter Factory. Um, so they were a co-working space out of Melbourne that was backed by Adventure Capital, a VC fund. They came and said, this is what co-working is. And we have a bunch of things called startups. And as you started talking and describing all this, that kind of, clicked a gear and I was like, oh, so this, this is what I'm looking for. Like there's, you are an investor, you get to surround yourself with really cool people building really cool stuff. So that's the pathway I wanted to go down. I just basically latched myself onto them and just would hang around their co-working space as much as possible in Melbourne throughout uni. And when I wanted to actually get that as a job though, the door was kind of closed. Like there wasn't really much happening in tech at the time. Like if you're thinking 20, 14 to 2017 in Australian tech, there wasn't that much going on, especially in Melbourne. A venture capital in itself is a much, much more difficult area to break into. Your typical pathways are like you go into investment banking or you go into management consulting and then you pivot out after you've made a decent amount of money or you start a company yourself and I had done neither of those. So what I ended up doing is, fortunately I had enough people who knew the tech scene in Singapore. I was like, let me try that. Ah. So I got on a plane, it was my third year of uni, flew out to Singapore to just meet a whole bunch of people in tech, meet a bunch of VCs, Golden Gate Ventures, SG Innovate, all of those kind of fun people. And I got every one of them were like, wait, you've got no credentials and you're trying to get a job in VC. This is just not a thing. Like, and you're not even from here. Like, what are you doing? Um, but they all gave me the advice of, to go work for a startup. Okay. And so I started looking at where to go work for a startup and the advice they gave us specifically to work in sales which again, sales in Australia wasn't really a thing, yeah. right? Like for a long time, it's you become a partnerships manager or whatever. Like it wasn't an area to build a tech career pathway in sales. And so I just looked at where can I get a visa? I was like, London, tier five visa, nice and easy. Went to LinkedIn, startups, easy apply, and just sent in a job application to like 40 companies and one of them happened to be Paddle. That's kind of how I got to wow. there. Hold on, one question. Did you graduate uni? Go for very I did finish uni. I came very close to not graduating. Yeah. Um, and I remember I even called up, I was literally talking about this on the weekend, where I called up Harrison, the uh, co-founder and the person who interviewed me. I was like, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to graduate. And he got really annoyed. He's like, I don't, like, does that impact your visa? Like, why are you telling me this? Because um, they were both high school dropouts. Right, okay. So actually, Harrison finished high school, Christian didn't, but they never went to uni. They didn't care about that. They were just like, we think you're good, come take a sales role yeah. and get your own visa and move yourself over. Like it was a very small company at the time. Um, but yeah, did finish uni, packed my bags, 
flew out, started a job two weeks later. Nice. And what, what did you study at uni? Finance and economics. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. Which was another reason everyone told me I was useless in startups. They're just like, this is completely irrelevant to us. Like you need accounting, right? Like you need to be really, really good at accounting, but that's even then that's kind of later stage. Um, yes. but in terms of like actual economic theory, there's not many startups that kind of need that. But again, sales is a really natural role. It's like, can you build something or can you sell it? And I was like, I guess I can learn to sell it because I definitely can't learn to code. Like it's just not my skill set. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I ended up at Paddle. And Paddle is basically a payment infrastructure company. At the time, they were about to raise their Series B, 20-ish kind of people. Four years on, after going through mental crisis after mental crisis and many fires and a crazy startup journey, they're at like, what, 1.4 billion valuation, 400-ish people. Wow. Um, they did quite well. I kind of got over it. And, you know, in my third year, pretty much, I was just completely exhausted. Um, so I spent some time trying to find a new role. It, was, it made sense to go back to VC, basically. What What was, so you were in sales at Paddle. Uh, yeah. I don't actually know, I've heard of Paddle a lot, but I don't know what it, mm. like, you know, I don't know what the summary of their value prop is. or what. Yeah, absolutely. So... Paddle's really, really interesting. It's not for everyone in terms of how they want to go to market. But effectively, if you think about it, you're a SaaS company selling globally from day one, right? You go and get Stripe. Like, cool, I need to take payment somehow, right? And then you realize, oh, shoot, I owe tax in, like, Colorado. Like, I owe sales tax because it's oh, cross-border. snap, yep. What do I do, right? So you go and get Taximo or something. And then you're like, well, hold on, I need to manage my subscription because I'm trying to do something usage-based. Uh, let me get Chargebee end up building this massive tech stack of all these different tools that do different pieces of your revenue infrastructure. The principle of Paddle was to wrap this all into one. And so effectively, if you're a software uh, seller, you plug Paddle into your website and end-to-end, it handles everything for you. So if you want to roll out additional currencies, you know, I want to support Argentinian peso, for example, you click a box, you've now got that support and you've got a Spanish uh, language website. It sounds like Paddle would have been a um, pretty sweet acquisition target for one of these uh, payment processes at some point. They probably should have snapped it up when it was smaller. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's a difference in philosophy. For Paddle to work, it's a different legal uh, setup. They're technically a merchant of record, which means they are reselling your product onwards to everyone. So for you, if I'm, again, like let's say I'm LinkedIn, technically Paddle is reselling LinkedIn to whoever buys that LinkedIn sales navigator. Right, so Stripe is just a clear, I process your payment, that's it. Um, so that difference of legal structure has quite a lot of liability implications. Um, like even from the basic level of like chargeback processing, Paddle is liable for that chargeback as opposed to the consumer. Um, so there's implications from that perspective. And then there's also like people would try to sell weed off of Paddle, for example, and like different types of naughty stuff. And it's kind of... The one that deals with police later is Paddle, not the person who tried to resell it. So it's a really nice acquisition offering, but it is a risk decision for the likes of Stripe, et cetera, of like whether or not they want to take that on. There's been plenty of exit opportunities, don't get me wrong, even from outside of payments. Like if you think about anyone who has any level of company data or customer data, in theory, Paddle is a really sexy kind of acquisition because you go end-to-end. You've got all of your user management handled somewhere, or let's say you're a CRM or something, and then you can add on top of it all of the payment information, 
that's really rich and valuable. Um, so there's mm. so many opportunities, whether it's a Stripe or Braintree or whoever, or if it's someone just with data that wants to add on top of it. I feel like chargebacks is something we could have an entire podcast on where we just ah! complain about chargebacks the entire time and how they just ruin startups <laughs> and small businesses. Even today, I enabled Stripe Radar because we saw some weird, yeah. suspicious behavior on our new product after like day one. I'm just like, oh, okay, we're going to have to enable <laughs> some of these fraud detection tools in sooner than I thought we would. Uh, but essentially, like any any open paint like open payment gateway where you can actually try and process a credit card without being vetted very carefully by someone from the company whose payment gateway you're actually using uh, is definitely a target as a lot of people on Twitter are currently complaining about and they're finding out for the first time. Yeah. And I think it's also like what space you're within, right? Like for you guys, if I've understood your LinkedIn's correctly, basically you sell in like kind of B2B ish or prosumer type tools, right? You're not selling your direct 12-year-old uh, a voice module type software or something. But those tools are really prone for people who are cost savvy because they're trying to, they themselves build a business or they themselves make money. And as a consequence, they want to keep their costs low. So you're going to be really prone to chargebacks um, the moment you build a tool like that uh, in the first place. Like your skew of that world is going to be much more aggressive than for someone selling, I don't know, song samples. That's interesting. I was telling Kelvin that one thing I really learned off our time working together was that I really like doing enterprise sales because they're extremely easy requirements and they generally don't do chargebacks uh, <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, whereas it's a longer sales cycle though, right? Like an enterprise deal is going to be months in the middle. Oh, sure. But don't forget the... And that's why you charge so much more because you need to make yeah. back all of your hourly your hourly rate that you've sunk into six months and legal fees. And if you think about Although it, define enterprise. So, uh, for example, I would have defined as enterprise. Yeah. That that deal was worth, you know, 12 million per year if it had actually come off and the war in Ukraine hadn't started and their investors yeah. hadn't pulled the plug literally that day. Uh, I would have been a much happier and richer person. But, you know, if, if you think about, like, uh, as I was telling Kelvin, it's like there's one person in, in the company who you need to make very happy, uh, solve their one requirement they've been told to solve, pass some nonsense uh, a purchasing acquisition committee who is just there to rubber stamp and make sure that you're not some Yahoo and you're in. Uh, whereas opposed to something like, you know, consumer sales, like the saying is friends don't let friends start consumer uh, B2C businesses. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, here I am about to start a B2C business, right? Uh, yeah, no B2C business. B2C, I, I can't believe I'm getting into it, but it's a huge mistake. <laughs> I, I, again, there's, it's massively lucrative though, right? Like there's a company I know, we worked with them. Literally the first email they sent me is like their business plan written in the email because they're like, this is all we've got. Can we use Paddle? It's a company called VoiceMod. Um, oh, VoiceMod, really? VoiceMod. So okay. we first, uh, I worked with VoiceMod before the product was even launched, uh, which is awesome. Like wow. uh, Damien and Fernando are wicked, wicked founders, really lovely people as well. Um but that's, that's B2C selling to literally they're like, yeah, our biggest demographic is like 12 to 13 year olds kind of at the time. Don't quote me on yeah. that, but it's a young age. Um, yeah. And effectively they, they killed it. Like they got to, I won't share their revenue numbers, but they were doing a very, very healthy amount of money that they became one of Paddle's biggest customers as a B2C voice module software that had a really clunky UI at the time as well. 
Um, so there is lots of money if you find your right niche and you find the right go-to-market yeah. merchant. Like they were sponsored YouTubers. Mm-hmm. That was their biggest way of making money and like going viral with like kids making their voice sound like Darth Vader on YouTube, like streaming. Um, so as much as it's a painful business, uh, as you mentioned that, like there is opportunity there as well. Like it just depends how well you do. Yeah. Hey, on that also, can you quickly talk about um, basically what, so you got back into Scalata at that point. What was it like working in a VC? What'd you do? And then why move to Goodfit? Yeah, so getting into Scalata, it effectively was a consequence of burnout. Um, I was no longer interested in solving the problems that Pavel had to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I could have stayed longer if I wanted to, but after four years in the startup and the growth we went on, and I was really close again with the kind of C-suite team at the time. So there was the emotional up and down that they went through, which consequently I went through as well. I wanted to go back into venture and frankly it was difficult like i spoke with a couple of recruiters i spoke with a couple of vc firms and again having a startup background at the time was not as attractive i think a lot of funds were trying to raise their own fund as a concern you have bankers and you have lawyers etc as opposed to operators that's changed it's always going to be a bit of a pendulum swing you want operators at a certain point and you want uh bankers and lawyers at a certain point of a vc cycle but Scalata was one that wanted operators. Like, again, their whole model of being an operational seed stage venture firm, like that needs operators to kind of run. And so Maxine as well, I had kind of known about and Rowan from Map Days, so Melbourne Accelerator program. I knew of them and we had some mutual kind of connections there. So it was a very easy choice, I think, for me, to be honest. Like there was a lot of questions I had to ask through in terms of if they were building the right firm and if I was interested in that. But going into venture, it was what I thought would be the good, that's it, that's the career pathway. I didn't want to go back to startups. I was completely done with startups. Fortunately, many months down the line, the two people I was closest with at Paddle, which is Harrison Rose and Alexander Barry, who they were already working on GoodFit. They had been going at GoodFit for a year or two, um, reached out and said, hey, we're at a point we need to scale this commercial function. We're, we're calling you back now. Um, leave Australia, come back to London. Uh, we want you to take over this. And it's not often you get the opportunity to one, work with some of your closest friends, to work with who I generally think are some of the best people in SaaS uh, across all of Europe, like Alex and RevOps, uh, Absolute Wizard. Harrison's giving go the market advice for companies all over Europe, literally traveling with the notion uh, Notion Capital to, to Croatia and all these different places to give go-to-market wow. advice, for example. Um, so having that combination of friends and expertise slash talent is quite rare. But then also the product that GoodFit was, right? Like it's commercial data um, done a little bit differently. It's a problem we had at Paddle ourselves. Right. So effectively in terms of what GoodFit does, is if you think about the traditional commercial data providers like a Zoom Info or Cognizant, they basically have a massive database of accounts with some basic firmographic data, and they resell access to the platform to everyone boilerplate. But what ends up happening, you know, you guys have worked in SaaS yourselves and SaaS sales, is you end up needing, like, I need this information from Zoom Info. You're going to go to SEMrush and buy website traffic data. Now, well, hold on, I need funding data, so I know which is a fast-growing company. So let me go buy Crunchbase. You end up cobbling together loads of different databases. What GoodFit's trying to do is consolidate that entire data stack mm. into one for B2B. Nice. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I can definitely. So you see start the, off with mapping the whole market. Go ahead. Sorry. I can definitely see the value prop in that, right? Because you know, even from the even from the my, my days, I did have a lot of subscriptions to a lot of different places, and I feel like it was just constantly. I need this data. What service do I need to sign up to to get that data before I continue? Yeah. It, it, it literally that and like even if i think about you know tablog who's your fellow portfolio company um pat they they sell to borehole logging anyone who does borehole logging right mm-hmm. and it's kind of like well where do you start from a go the market perspective it's like you start with mapping the market like there's the director of every company that does borehole logging i can't remember the website but you go you scrape that entire website you know have a list of every potential customer globally it not only helps you know who to start targeting and like if you want to run an abm campaign then awesome because you can literally upload that list into linkedin or into facebook and run a targeted ad campaign but even informs your product roadmap right it's like well do i expand to europe first or do i expand to the us first what where are the more of my customers and that you know can i if i'm going to do even like a physical road trip where do i go when you have a list of every single company you can sell to that's also a starting point but it's not enough mm what you need is all of those other data points as you kind of mentioned, right? It's like, you buy the traffic data, you buy, you know, who's hiring for additional engineers, for example, et cetera. And that, that way you can prioritize that list, but then also segment them out into different groups so you can message them a lot more specifically. So sales is more a, an actual science of actually getting these things mapped out and actually having a plan and constructing that plan and doing your research than it is actually sitting down in a room with a PowerPoint and just trying to sell somebody something, isn't it? sales should be the most boring thing you do mm-hmm. like uh, when you're building a company right it doesn't matter how good your product is like I'm, I'm the whole product-led growth kind of trajectory is such a survivorship bias overall the majority of companies if they can't sell their thing they won't succeed and the only way you know how to sell your thing is to basically run it like an experiment you get a, a call script, you run it 10 times, does the sign of messaging work? No, tweak it, run another 10 times. Like, it's science. There's no art. There's art in the joy on top of it. Like, there's an art piece, you know, when you start your, let's say your call pleasantries, and, you know, how do you get someone actually to pay attention to you when you're trying to talk to them for the first time? Like, sure, there's hooks that you can use. But even those hooks end up being repeatable. Like, I've literally, in my call notes, got... And this is something I picked up from Harrison, but I've got my jokes scripted. So when I'm hopping, oh, wow. on, I already know what I'm going to joke about in terms of the weekend or like if I've got a mess in the back of my room, I already know that I'm going to reference it. Like this is all re- pre-done yeah. and it's not, you know, sell me this pen. Like that isn't really what sales is anymore, at least. It's, it's almost like highly choreographed conversations to you know, seem to be working. Well, that's almost a little bit like what we do in engineering, isn't it? Which is, um, I'm trying to draw it to something that we do, which is copy and paste a whole lot of code <laughs> and you said that we already know works. And then right? tweak it slightly. Exactly, exactly. I know this code worked because I wrote it at my last job. I'm just going to copy and paste it into my new job. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you solve the same problem again when you know it works? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On that also, I, I, I guess... We talked about uh, an existing portfolio company who was uh, and their sales cycle and what that sort of looks like. And Declan's doing a fantastic job and he has some staff with him as well uh, going around the US and the UK. But if you're a new startup, how do you actually identify those first prospects? In, like, you know, for example, I have a theory that I think this product is going to be worth something to somebody. How do I actually then go out and yeah. try and sell that to somebody? And what does that sale look like when I approach them? Yeah, so... 
there's a couple of sequencing things here. I don't think it makes sense to, depending on what you're trying to build in the first place, you should probably do some validation before you even build it, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it's a very yeah. simple, you can smash it out of the day programming wise, like, okay, cool, go for it. Like at least you've got proof of concept you can show people. But for the most part, you want to understand the value prop, like good fit started almost as a services type company. And then it pivoted into a platform. Um, can I just ask Chris quickly on that? So, because you started Good Fit at the beginning, like as in they were kicking off, or had they been operating for a little while, and that's when they called you back in? They had been operating for a little while, so they were okay. um, at the time I joined them. They had kind of been doing just founder hackiness type situation. Like there was no real go to market. I mean, to be honest, there still isn't go to market. We're purely inbound uh, at the moment, but right, it was you know let's say on the way to a million ARR at the time I joined them. Okay. Um, but there's still revenue there. There was a customer base. You know, we they were already working with the likes of Clary, uh, which is a quite a large player. It's not the largest player in RevOps um, out there. But in terms of the starting to scale that or even cross the million dollar in ARR uh, US, that was not the case. Okay, and so yeah, and so what you were saying is in terms of like you should go out and validate first. Uh, continue with that because that's yeah that's a really interesting point yeah, that a lot totally. of people miss yeah i mean this again like good fit started off because paddle had a problem so it was kind of preempted in terms of the problem there right and yeah cool left it's like who else do we know in the community or at least alex kind of asking the question who else do i know has this problem got his first client or two literally doing it as a services type model it's like well, what do you need so we need you know, to find all of our customers here. It's like, cool, I'll go find them out. It's like, well, what data do you need? Well, I need this data and this data. All right, cool, let me go find this out here. Um, and so effectively through that kind of services approach, we're starting to identify what's repeatable from a product perspective. Yeah. But you and already so- knew that there was value. Yeah, right. And so by services type model, uh, just I'm not super familiar with the terminology, but that mm-hmm. does make sense. It's like, instead of me selling you a product, I'm selling you my services as somebody who is skilled in this area. Exactly. And I'll solve this problem with you. And you just continue to do that Literally. to validate, right? The more you yep. get, the more repeatable patterns you see, and then you can build a product based out of that. Okay. Bingo. And it doesn't work for every type of product. Like, again, if yeah. you think about voice mod, you being a B2C type software, it's like, how the hell are they going to do a services type approach? Like, that's not going to work. And even most yeah. B2B software, like 23 shout, Pat, when you kind of build it, you can't really do that as a services, really, like, a dialer isn't really a services type yeah. approach, but you can come up with something basic. Like even if I think about your existing competitive landscape, if there are products trying to solve for the problem already in the space, generally there's enough there for you to actually start iterating upon it. Um, but in terms of finding your first few customers, it is kind of an element of trial and error, right? And it depends on what, how far back are you starting from? Like if you're a founder and I don't know what somewhere with let's say Rockhampton, you know, given Kevin, that's kind of the common connection we had. Yeah, um, yeah. You don't have a big tech scene around you. Yeah. So you can't go and knock on shoulders. If I'm selling a company in Melbourne, absolutely, I'd be in the covering space tapping shoulders to see, hey, who's interested in this kind of product? So there is yeah. a bit of an element of what's your environment like and you know, who do you already know? Everyone has a previous career usually or went to university or went to high school. They know people that can be the first users so you start there, but from at that point, is you have a theory. I think people who have roughly operate within this industry are probably going to use my product. It's like, cool, where can I find those people? Yeah. Uh, it's probably on Crunchbase. Let me do a quick search. All right, pull a list of companies. Cool, let me just 
try reach out to this person, find their LinkedIn profile, hit them up. It's just really guerrilla, basic type stuff at the beginning. And that slowly you'll iterate and learn upon what is repeatable, what is the common patterns you're seeing there. And then you worry about finding a scalable approach. Like at the beginning, you're just trying to prove that you can do the thing and find the right customer in the first place. So early stage companies don't need, you know, this might be the wrong thing to uh, pitch to you right now, but early stage companies don't need these fancy sales tools. They don't need, for example, all these crazy lead generation finders or big data uh, acquisition things where I can no. pull down that. Yeah. All they need is... I, I don't think so. I, I think it's a distraction, right? Because you're spending so much time optimizing for a tool and so spending time trying to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some tools that help, right? Like let's say Apollo Dio. I think it's a fantastic tool for if you're early and trying to just find people to target. Like it's basically got the same filters as LinkedIn, but then you can get contact data on top of it. A uh, pretty good deal. Oh, cool. Um, so I think that's a decent place to start, for example, but you don't need to opt- optimize for it at all. Um, the, your focus should be on trying to learn as fast as possible and as much as possible as opposed to how do I set up my pipeline and my CRM? Now, if setting up your pipeline lets you understand better and lets you learn better, do it. Um, if you need a task management tool so you know what steps and what actions you're taking, do that. But only if it's actually meaningfully helping you learn better. So this sounds like the, star, the type of information you would have been given to giving to the founders at... Uh, Scalata, is that right? Because like, I was just thinking about, because you went from a role yep. where you were actually like feet on the ground running mm-hmm. these sales tasks. And then you've gone into Scalata Ventures, which is kind of seed level funding. Uh, and so I'm, and as a tech founder, if I was going into that, sales is the last thing that I'm thinking of. I, you know, I mean, like I'm not a salesperson. I don't like doing sales. I'm a tech person. I default to making stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and usually tech that, founders will You need to be hit in that, the right? face with how important sales yeah. is. It's, 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 it feels like almost a shame because you take, you know, building stuff away from being almost an art form and kind of like being an engineering exercise to the harsh reality of the world. But at the end of the day, someone has to pay the bills and if no one's going to buy your product, I, I generally think it's the reason most founders fail. They build something for themselves or they build something really cool for their surrounding group of people and they have no way to commercialize it. Or the All In podcast was recently, on, I think it was the last episode, talking about like what's even an economically viable company in the first place. It's like yeah. some things just don't make economic sense and therefore you can't build a company within it no matter how cool the product is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Great idea. But if, and people might use it if it's free, but you're, I, I, just, I was listening to the Indie Hackers podcast, mm. I think. And one of the things they were hammering home is you haven't validated an idea until somebody's paid for it. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe actually, I'm sorry. I think that was startups for the rest of us, um, yeah. which, yeah. And that's, he's like, yeah, that's great. People use it. Amazing. You could have 2 million users, but if nobody's paid for it, it's not a validated idea. Yeah. And the, the 2 million users is interesting, right? You think about Twitter, mm-hmm. like in theory, it's a user play. It's like great to have as many number of users as possible and then try and monetize or try advertise afterwards. Um, but there's a long pathway. And unless you've got that funding, not many people can get there. You mind if I just ask you a question, Mahi, because I know we're really sensitive on time as well. Is failing your startup anything to be ashamed of if you go bankrupt? They say 90% of them go bankrupt in a year, right? And then 90% of those, again, will go bankrupt again. And then the funnel just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. 
Should you ever take that as a bad thing? No, absolutely not. Well, I don't get how doing the more statistically likely outcome, like get, achieving the statistically likely outcome is a bad thing. Like the majority of startups are going to fail and therefore why would you be ashamed? If anything, it's learnings. Like it's learnings the hard way. But there's a toll that failing as a startup on paper, you know, bankruptcy or whatever, does take you on, on your mental psyche. But it isn't something to be ashamed of at all. It's whether or not you can bounce back from that or pivot that into learnings, even to go back and be a startup operator. Like you don't even have to start a new company afterwards. The learnings you can take from mistakes as a founder mm. is incredibly valuable. Mm. Do you mind if I also ask on top of that? Because like we're going to really bang out these remaining questions now. As somebody who did work previously work at a VC, if you did fail a startup, yeah. Are they? If you come back and with a new idea and ask for additional funds, or you come back with a new business, are they going to look down on you? Are you going to look down on this person as no, you previously failed, so therefore you're too risky? Why did it fail? I think that's the question. And what did you learn? Yeah. Second time founders are really, really attractive, and that's true whether they failed or not. I mean, obviously, a second time successful founder is way more attractive than someone who failed, but. If you can come back to a firm and say, this is what I learned from my previous company, mm. this is how I'm not going to repeat those mistakes, or this is how I've accounted for them, that's gold dust because that type of experience doesn't come cheap. Yeah. Um, and it's even better when a VC firm doesn't have to lose their money on your, <laughs> your previous company. You come honest. from another VC who's wasted their yeah. money. <laughs> not, not wasted, invested their money. <laughs> So don't go back to Scalata is what you're no, saying. No, no, no. Scalata will want that first dip because they paid for it. Oh, very yeah. That's paid. right. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hard stop the questions there because I just wanted to say, what he, I really, really appreciate We both really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, and I'd love to, like, if you've got time again in the future, I'd love to dive into some of those topics a little bit more, hear how GoodFit is going. And I've got a bunch more questions around like how, you know, paddle and, and how your role evolved as it grew uh, and, and how that translated into how you worked at Scalata. But we'll save that for another day. No, no, absolutely. I mean, Pat and I have spent many, many hours uh, sharing war stories and Kelvin's been also to me here in chat as well. Definitely will come back. Made my day meeting somebody with a connection to Rockhampton. Because honestly, it doesn't happen, that, especially in the tech sector. Does not happen very often. I felt so left out during that. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm just in the Gold Coast. Awesome, guys. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Rahid. We really appreciate that Wahid came on and spent all this time with us. And we really want to highlight the most important points that were raised there. It was an interesting conversation. It was quite broad. We didn't really dive into some of those specific lessons. And so we want to do that now just to highlight that for any of those of you who are listening that are thinking about starting startups. Uh, Pat, what do you think the biggest takeaway from that conversation was? You know, to me, it's it's almost a, a, a toss up between how important sales is in a company and just thinking about a company as a person, a person can't survive without money, or at least they can't survive in a, in a good way. And, and neither can a company. That's just the, the matter of fact, like, you know, you might try and run a company as just a, a tech hobby, but if you don't have, if you don't have money coming in, if you don't have that sales process, if you don't get a job, basically think about sales as a job. If you don't have a job, you're not going to grow as a company. You're going to be very unlikely to survive as a company. You're going to end up being one of that, you know, the 90% that shuts down. And you're not going to be shutting down for a good reason. 
the other thing I wanted to nominate as possibly the most important thing is that if you do fail that business and you genuinely tried, there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. And in fact, it's almost a mark of pride, especially in the US, they understand this. If you're a attempted business owner, someone who actually tried, that's something that will get you a pat on the back and people will, you know, they see you in a good light. If you're somebody in, in Australia, there's this weird culture in Australia where the second one of our friends starts a business, oftentimes you, you lose that friend in, in, in this sort of tall poppy syndrome sort of way. And I found this the same thing at, at uh, tw- when I started 23 Shout. I had a lot of people who were my coworkers who, uh, and my friends in real life who were good friends of mine. And once I went off to start a business, they just sort of drifted away. And it wasn't that I wasn't talking to them. It's almost just like a... You know, I hate to say it, it's almost like a tall poppy thing. It made no sense whatsoever. I was the exact same person, except that now I was technically on paper running a business and I had no income. <laughs> and they still have this tall poppy syndrome. I don't, like I didn't understand it, uh, it one way or the other. If a friend starts a business, and this is what I've always done, when they, some of them started, ended up starting businesses or Etsy stores or you know, online SaaS companies, I went and bought the most expensive version of their product immediately. And I'm never going to use some of those products. One of them is a necklace from Etsy, which I never used, obviously, because it's, you know, it just doesn't really suit my style. But I went and bought it because I feel like, you know, hey, your friend started a business, good on you. Have your first sale from me or have one of your first sales on me, right? Yeah. I want to be part of that process to encourage you and, and, and to say like, well done, well done for trying. You bought something off Natty's store as well, Natty's Etsy store. Yeah. It's a it's a principle when, I stick by, right? If someone starts a business, a friend starts a business, I will buy their product. Just don't make it too expensive, please. If it's over $1,000, I'm not buying it. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, I'm sorry that I didn't buy your $99 a month business plan on uh, a 23 I was waiting for the, like the $15 a month entry plan, but you never quite got there. You're going to buy a copy of Lugs though, aren't you? Sure. If it's $9, I will buy a copy of Lux. Well, it's going to have a launch sale, so it'll be $29. Sure. I'll buy a $29 copy of Lux. Brilliant. You can tell me if the licensing actually works or if it breaks. You can be my my first test outside of the dev environment. Well, you can give me a coupon code I mean, as well, and I can test it. Well, it's automatically applied, really, with the launch sale, so I wouldn't worry about that. Just go on there. Oh, ah, yeah, cool. Thanks, man. You're welcome. But yeah. I think they're great lessons. Uh, yeah, for, and for me, the, the biggest takeaway for me there was the explanation of the, the services, starting as a services model and transitioning to a SaaS product. So you know, you've got skills in an area, you've got knowledge, or even if you don't, you learn how to do something and you sell that service to you know, as many businesses as you can, find the repeatable parts of that yeah. and build a SaaS product around it. So you've validated your idea, you've got revenue, and then you transition into a, a software as a service that uh, that does the repeatable parts of that as as a service. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, oh, I'm just tripping over my words here, but I think that's a really great lesson to learn. And one thing I also wanted to point out there, and I really wanted to call it out, but it just wasn't the time was this product emerged from an idea at Paddle or rather a pain point they saw at Paddle, yeah. as I recall. That is so common. If you're looking for a way to get an idea for a business, don't sit there and brainstorm something. Very likely, you already know a great idea for a business. And it's the thing that really sucks at your job. 
so many pain points, so many great business ideas will come out of something at your job, which you are constantly running into that you hate. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Thursday or your, or, or like the, the schedule on Thursday, too many meetings or your manager, you know, really hustling you for something. I'm talking about a pain point in the actual process. For example, 23 yeah. Shout was that we were using a dialer at a previous job that just absolutely sucked. You know, we, we started on desk phones and then we transitioned to mobiles. And my job was to go down to Vodafone every Friday and buy 10 new SIM cards because they would shut down the last 10 because they would figure out we were running a call center. Uh, and then we swapped over to this, this software dialer. It was terrible. And I just remember going to the boss and saying, I'm pretty sure I can do better than this. Please give me two weeks. And if I make something good, I'll sell it back to you as a product. And his whole approach was, uh, I'm not sure if it was really generous looking back, like he was a really good guy or if he just didn't believe I could do it. He was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So I came back two weeks later and had a copy of a new dialer that he could use uh, and they took it on board. And I had a 20, my first customer with 21 seats, right? And that was how I got my first customer was through, through my job, a pain point at my job. Yeah. And it's great when you work in an environment that allows that because not all environment, not all places. But definitely, I think, all right. I think that's, that's, that's a good place to start. If you're looking for an idea, don't sit there and start brainstorming on a whiteboard like a lot of people do at startup weekends. Start with a pain point that you actually feel personally. And I do mean personally. I don't yeah, mean, whether or not it be in your personal life or in your work. Yeah, don't do something where, like if I saw you, Kelvin, I saw a pain point in your process, I wouldn't go after that because it doesn't interest me personally. It's not something yeah. that I care about and I actually have the experience in. It would have to be from my own job, my own experience and something that actually continuously and frustrates and annoys me and I can actually get my head around and solve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the, what they call product founder fit. Mm. It's if it's a pain point of yours and it's for something that you like doing or it's a problem that you like solving, you're much more likely to stick out the hard times than if it's maybe a great idea but you don't have the passion for it, then you're unlikely to push through. Well, okay, so that's a good wrap-up for this week. Uh, we had yeah, an amazing conversation with Wahid, and we've got those key takeaways. So next week, we will talk to Pat himself. We've mentioned 23 Shout a few times on this podcast and never really given much of a backstory Ooh. about it. And so we're going to dive into that story from start to finish on the next show. Uh, Pat's going to give us the rundown of, again, how we got into it, uh, he's given a bit of information uh, in previous episodes, but we really want to dive into that and talk about, yeah, how how he got into it, how it grew, uh, his process through Scalata, going from bootstrapping it with his own funds to getting some investment and going through an accelerator, and then to what happened and why it got wound up. Yeah. So stick with us because that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Absolutely. And one of the big things I'm going to do is give you seven key takeaways that I learned from actually running that business. And I guarantee these aren't going to be things that you normally read on, uh, you know, get startup advice for people who want to get into startups. This is my personal, I was there. Uh, this is what happened, brutally honest and uh, open thoughts on running a startup and the mistakes I made that you can avoid. Thanks for making it all the way to the end. If you'd like to get to any of the companies mentioned in the podcast, we have links down in the description and you can get to our socials by visiting our website at techhuddle.show. Catch you next week.